Universal Healthcare. Is Massachusetts pointing the way? You're listening to Reach MD. XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me is Mr. Merrill Guzner. He's the director of the Integrity and Science Project at the Center for Science in the Public Interest, CSPI, in Washington, D.C. Mr. Guzner joined CSPI after a 25-year career in journalism, mostly with the Chicago Tribune. His current work involves the investigation of scientific conflicts of interest in the academic literature, the press, and the federal advisory committees. Today, we're going to be talking about Massachusetts' effort at Universal Healthcare. And Merrill, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure to be here. Before we talk about Massachusetts, could you tell us a little bit about your own background, how you got into the healthcare reporting business? Actually, I got into healthcare reporting from being an economics correspondent and covering the debate in the late 1990s over Medicare reform. And that took me into investigative reporting of the drug industry, which led to my uh, book, The $800 Million Pill, which came out in 2004. And uh, just by thinking a lot about prices and drugs and how it interacts with the healthcare system, I've done a lot more research and writing in this decade of just about the healthcare system as a whole, and especially the influence of money on the healthcare system and how it, in many ways, is undermining. Uh, our ability to deliver high-quality health care to all of our citizens. Speaking of uh, money and health care, Massachusetts has on the table what would, looks like it might be the first uh, state to impose a mandate on individuals with respect to health care insurance. Given your background, what you do in the Integrity and Science Project, let me ask you this. With a large effort like this, especially one that poses a complex uh, hodgepodge of fixes, are efforts like these likely to have conflicts of interest? And, and if so, how does somebody like you or how does your group look at such things? How do you investigate such things? things, or do you? At the state level, we have not done a lot of work. I've focused most of my effort at the national level, but to answer your question, yes, there is absolutely a tremendous amount of pressure that goes into the construction of any of these plans for universal health care, whether it's at the state or national level. That pressure comes in the form of lobbying because you have very distinct special interests involved. You have the insurance industry, which obviously collects fees from everybody who gets insurance and then pays out for health care. And so the difference between the two is their profit. So they have this interest in trying to minimize what they have to cover. You know, we can remember the great fights of the late 90s when the health maintenance organizations were being pushed by the insurance industry. And then, of course, there were these denials of care and you had the backlash of the patient rights movement. And so insurance companies have this natural tension in that their profit is determined by delivering less care. On the other hand, you have the provider community, the doctors, the hospitals, the freestanding clinics often that are owned by doctors. You have the drug industry, the medical device industry, the durable equipment industry. And all of these folks are getting their paychecks, in essence, from this $2.2 trillion economy. It is one-seventh of all economic activity in the United States today is around health care, which, by the way, is a good full four or five percentage points higher than as a percent of GDP than any other country in the world. Right. And that's because we pay the highest prices in the world for almost everything. The highest drug prices, the highest per day cost in hospitalization, on and on and on. Our doctors make 20 to 30 to 40 percent higher than doctors in other countries around the world. And this is in purchasing power parity. And because, you know, we have so many specialists here in European countries, they have 70% primary care doctors and 30% specialists. Here, the ratios are just the reverse. And so all of these special interests, not to mention patient advocacy groups who are saying, cover my disease in a certain way very often, and so trying to push the boundaries of coverage, 
All of these special interests come into play when you are trying to reform the insurance system. Is it likely, given your experience, that these conflicts of interest are at all transparent to the voting public, to the legislature that's making these decisions? And and if not, how do you guys go about helping? I know you don't generally deal on the state level, but in such cases, how is that information best transmitted? Or is it ever? Is it possible? Do you conceive that it could be? Lobbying laws in most states are fairly transparent. But, you know, that doesn't really get at the underlying scope of the problem, because lobbying is really only the tip of the iceberg. So much of what goes on in healthcare today is is really a war over standards, and that those standards, for instance, clinical practice guidelines that are written by physicians or physician organizations, such as their professional societies, or formularies which may be established for what drugs an insurance plan will or will not buy, become a huge tug of war between drug companies, drug companies and generics, between drug companies and the insurance company. You can go on and on and on. There is debates that go on in the medical literature about what is the best way to treat something. We don't have very good information in our society about what are the best things for a particular condition. If you're identified with prostate cancer and you're in your late 60s, Should you have it cut out? Should you get a radiating seed? Should you just watch and wait? What's the best course for you? The literature is not all that clear. Or if you go to the literature, what you will find is is that if you're a radiologist and your society may say one thing, where if you're a general practitioner, you may say another. And if you're the oncologist who gives drugs in his office and can make a markup for doing that, he may say, you know, let's go to chemotherapy. If you're a surgeon, you might say, well, the best, our society thinks the best thing to do is cut it out. So even in the very practice of medicine, we see conflicts of interest sort of influencing the decision-making that goes on. If you're a uh, carpenter, everything looks like a nail. Hmm? Well, exactly, and that's very much true in medicine. So what we don't have is we don't have a source of objective information. In Great Britain, for instance, you have the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which is a quasi-governmental organization that actually does systematic reviews of medical evidence, and then publishes what it believes to be the best practice. Now, as a practical matter, you have the National Health Service in Great Britain. They adopt that as a standard. You know, we don't even get to step one here. We never mind the fact we don't have a National Health Service that can adopt common standards. We don't even get to first base where we don't even have an institute at NIH or anywhere that actually goes out, conducts systematic reviews of medical evidence, keeps those reviews up to date, and then publishes what the best standard of care ought to be for a good and common situation. And so that means that it's left to insurance companies and patient groups and doctors to all sponsor their own views of these subjects, where we can come up with a sort of Tower of Babel kind of conflicting advice, some of which conflicts with what other advice people are giving. And doctors sometimes and patients don't even really know what the best thing to do. And so we have huge variations in care around the country, huge variations in outcomes around the country. You can be spending twice as much in one area as you do in another and no difference in outcomes or even sometimes the higher spending area will have worse outcomes. It's just a complete hodgepodge. Merrill, you talked earlier about some of the battles that went on with HMOs in the 90s. Any uh, analogies you see here in uh, Massachusetts' effort to impose mandates on individuals and some of the arguments and issues that were raised with HMOs in the past? Well, I think that that's, it's still a little unclear exactly what's going to happen in Massachusetts. I know that the latest news is that Many people are signing up for health insurance, and what they're finding is that when they go out to get their primary care physician, finally, which is required under any insurance plan, the kind of gatekeeper, your 
person that is, you know, who you're supposed to get your annual physical from and, and those kinds of things. What they're finding is, is that doctors are so booked up that they can't take them from, you know, six months or a year, uh, or they can't even find a doctor. So when the underserved population finally comes in because they get insurance, they discover that, in fact, that the number of primary care physicians aren't there to meet the need. And, you know, this is obviously would be a huge problem nationwide if we ever went to universal health insurance. What happens is that when you begin adopting plans like they did in Massachusetts, you begin uncovering all the sort of imbalances that have been created in our system as it's evolved over the last several decades. And one of the first ones to sort of hit the fan, if you will, is just simply the huge imbalance in our physician population. We have far too many specialists delivering far too many fee-for-service procedures that many of which aren't really necessary or, you know, are just simply being done because that's really what's in the physician's interest rather than the patient's interest, even though the physicians legitimately think that this is what I ought to be doing. And at the same time, we are a real shortage of the primary care physicians to manage that person's health care and to make sure they get preventive health care. Are you aware of any uh, other initiatives uh, on a state level that are trying to go this way and, and where they stand? And do you see any advantages or disadvantages to other proposals? Um, I'm thinking California maybe. The California failed. Right. You know, the legislature, when it recognized that the amount of money that was going to be required in order to make universal care a reality in, in the largest state in the country, uh, they balked at the last moment. Everybody was for it except when it came to actually pay the bill. And so this uh, really sort of puts front and center an issue that I've been trying to raise over and over again in the various forums where I participate, which is is that the conflicts of interest in medicine, in which so many people have a self-interest, their own personal income, geared to delivering health care the way it is being delivered today, that we have to begin dealing with that in a sort of upfront fashion if we're ever going to be able to afford universal health care. If you don't begin seriously, taking serious steps to cut out waste in the system, you're only going to be requiring more and more taxes, which from my vantage point, when you look at a healthcare system that is already consuming 16% of GDP, $2.2 trillion a year, the estimates, people who compile the Dartmouth Atlas of Health, which if you're not familiar with it or your listeners aren't familiar with it, they should spend some time on that website. Just Google Dartmouth Atlas of Health. They estimate 30% of healthcare costs are unnecessary. That's $600 billion a year. The estimates of what it would cost to insure all of the uninsured is 50 to $100 billion a year, depending on whose plan you're taking a look at. Well, $100 billion a year in new taxes, if you don't cut out any of the waste, is sort of like throwing fuel onto a raging fire. There obviously is enough waste out there in order to eliminate some of that or at least begin to go after it so that you can hold down any tax increases to the minimal amount necessary. And if you were to do that, then we could begin getting to a universal health care system at the national level that's affordable. It's hard to imagine any state being able to adopt the kind of measures that will be needed to hold down that kind of waste. What are we talking about here? Well, for instance, you could just simply begin by minor steps like allowing Medicare to begin negotiating the price of drugs, which they're not now allowed to do. That could save billions of dollars every year, $5 billion a year, $10 billion a year has been the estimate. If you were to just simply begin to create national guidelines on how certain things got done so that some of the wasteful procedures that people are being lined up for were cut out of the system. And if that were done, then you could see additional billions of dollars saved. The Commonwealth Fund published a study in December that took a look at 
the use of these kinds of national clinical practice guidelines, guiding care for physicians, not cutting people off if they didn't fit within the guidelines. It says, use these guidelines first. If that doesn't work, then you can go to other standards of care that might work in that particular patient's case. But if we began channeling the vast majority of the population into the most effective cure at the lowest prices, that they estimated that we could save $350 billion over 10 years, about $35 billion a year. Yeah, that's a negotiating for drugs. And all of a sudden, you're getting close to the level that you would need to insure all of the uninsured at either a very low tax on employers who don't provide insurance, if that's the route you want to go, or at affordable rates for individuals, if that's the route you want to go. Merrill, I just want to thank you again for being our guest and giving us some uh, perspective in the bigger picture. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening.